0: In this film in particular in Violet, to me the most important character in the film is the viewer. I wanted to make an immersive experience for the viewer so they could go kind of like a you know, amusement park ride, you get in it and you go through it yourself instead of objectively watching the actor's experiences.
1: Brian Smith here and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Justine Bateman's on the show. Justine is a screenwriter, director, and author. Her acting credits include her role as Mallory Keaton for seven seasons on Family Ties with Michael J. Fox, followed by numerous roles in television and film, like Satisfaction, Men Behaving Badly, Desperate Housewives, and Californication. Justine recently made her feature film directorial debut with Violet, starring Olivia Munn, Luke Bracey, and Justin Thoreau. Violet is about a movie studio executive, played by Olivia Munn, who has lived her entire life making fear based decisions, but to become her true self must overcome these fears, taking her life in an entirely different direction. Violet premiered at South by Southwest this year and releases in theaters on October 29th, followed by a VOD release. On November 9th. I watched Violet before this interview, twice in fact, and it's a really unique film. Without giving too much away, it's a multimedia experience. There's a voice in Olivia Munn's character's head, narrated by Justin Thoreau. There's journal entries that appear on the screen, and there are color and hue changes in the scenes that kind of click with the emotion that Violet is experiencing. It's a really cool, innovative, and compelling way to tell a story that hits you from many different angles. And this makes watching the film an immersive experience. Violet is getting a lot of buzz, as is Olivia Munn's performance, which is a lot different than many of her prior roles. So definitely check this one out in theaters if you can, or on VOD in a few weeks. I really felt a connection with Justine in this chat, and as a result, it ended up going a little longer than most. We talked about her book from a few years back called Fame, how COVID protocols can inhibit the creative process on set, And why Justine believes that Violet, even though it's one of the more unique films I've seen, was one of her more conventional screenplays. We also talk about why she chose this screenplay out of the many she's written to be her first feature, how she attracted so much A-list talent, and what advice she has for aspiring filmmakers wanting to break into the industry. In a nutshell, this was a badass deep dive on some fascinating topics. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Justine Bateman. Justine Bateman, welcome to DreamPath Podcast.
0: Well, thank you. Uh first of all I want to tell you you do you do uh like radio? I mean your voice, you have like the perfect radio announcer voice. I'm sure you've been told that <laughs> as I was listening to your other podcasts.
1: Oh yeah? Yeah. Well oh, it's kind of you to listen. I'm not into radio, but I just started this podcast a few years ago and you know I'd never thought about my voice or the quality of my voice until I started listening to myself and, and uh, then I get all self-conscious about it. So I appreciate the compliment.
2: <laughs> sure.
1: Well, Justine, I was off mic when I said this, but I was just finishing your book, Fame. And unfortunately, I did not get a chance to read Face Yet, which is your most recent book, but it really provided some nice context, I think, to talk about the film Violet, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But that book, Fame... How long did it take you to formulate those thoughts and put them onto pen and paper or computer, however you wrote the book? Because for me, as a reader, it seems like it's a meditation on the fame that you experienced beginning with Family Ties, of course, back in the 80s. But in terms of wanting to put that in literary form, when did that process start?
0: Fame? uh, such a while ago. Um, it was, uh, I guess, like in 2012, when I was at uh, UCLA, when I started there for my undergrad, uh, I just started making notes. And uh, in the summers, I would, you know, work a little bit on it. But I, I didn't have a lot of time during the school year. And then, um, yeah, put that together. Uh, did it in like a academic version. I got halfway through like a academic format and then, uh, and then changed course when I realized it needed to be in a different style.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I did that. Yeah. And then once I, once I changed over to different style, like I, it only took me like three weeks to write it because I, but because I had done so much prep beforehand, I'd done so much, you know, it still has the structure. The book still has this, st- even though I did it in a completely different style, it still has the structure that I, that I created for the, um, academic version. And that's what I endeavor to do with all of my projects is to have, no matter how loose or avant-garde or kind of stylistically new um, any of my projects appear to be, they all have a sound structure underneath them. You know, you can you can tear the project apart and it will still stand up. It will still, I mean, I think that has to be true of any piece of art, you know, and and you know, all the... All the best art, uh, no matter how, uh, like I said, avant-garde it seems. There's a strong structure underneath it. Uh, otherwise, it, it just it it won't withstand time, in my observation.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I I know we're not here to talk about fame, but I just. Yeah. Sorry. I just I, I
0: haven't talked about that book for a long time, so I had to you know readjust there for a sec. I yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I, I always try to do a deep dive on other work before I properly prepare for an interview on any given film. And I, I, I really enjoyed it because I think what you captured or tried to define in, in a way is something that is undefinable. So it's a very difficult task, I think, and I, I enjoy those types of topics. And I've talked a lot about the concept of charisma before and how undefinable charisma is. When someone walks into a room and your eyes gravitate toward that person, why is that? What do they have?
0: Yeah. Or even I've been thinking about personality lately. Like, you know, sure, there's, you know, you could talk about nature and nurture, but it's really, it's so ephemeral Mm. what somebody's personality is. You could put, if somebody, you know, that's another one. That would be, that would be a really interesting study to do, you know, just like as a project.
1: Right. Like you drop them into a certain situation and they-
0: Or into a certain body or a certain-
1: you Oh, know, if you take, yeah.
0: You know, if you, you know, you were born with, I guess it's, it's arguable, did you? Were you born with a particular personality? I mean, I think we are. Mm-hmm. You know, for anyone who's had a kid, I don't know if you have any kids, but-
1: Yeah, th- three daughters. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you can see like there's a particular personality. There's a particular personality to the pregnancy even. I think your wife- could mm. attest to yep. that in my experience seemed to match the kid. It's strange. I don't know if that's always the case, but it's, it's, it's interesting. There's this, and where does that reside? The personality in the person, like, is it in the mind? Is it in the soul? Is it, it's weird, right? This, yeah. this type of person that, you know, cause the body is really just a, a, a vehicle we're in, mm. but you know, so many people think that that is who they are this morphology, this, the size of their body or the color of it or the gender of it, or it's really just your kind of, just your vehicle through this experience, Yeah, you know?
1: Yeah. Our, our, our vessel.
0: But this, your personality, your soul, your personality, your, your intellect, your, those are to me like really who you are.
1: Yeah. Well, write that book. You should write it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be, yeah, that's a, that's a much more, that's much more ephemeral to me than fame though fame is like completely inexplicable i i, I agree with you like that magnetism where what, what, what is that mm-hmm. and and yeah and and in the same way fame what is you know someone walks in the room and like everything in the room changes because they just walked in like how why how did that happen how did everybody in the room and then you know i mean i so i, I just tried to focus on that in that book and and then just the the life cycle of fame which you know i think is is very interesting particularly what i call post fame you know yeah. when the fame is descending and then completely goes away and then does it ever go away is it like a lobster trap you know once you've had it you can never be somebody who's without it mm-hmm. ever and why is that even yeah so the book goes you know you've you've read it but it goes into all of that and then why did we put fame on such a high pedestal yeah you know as a as a society
1: it's a fascinating question,
0: and and now you know this democratization of the seeking of fame is what social media has done, mm-hmm. and now everybody can seek it. But to what end? Like, oh, so now we're now we very much so quantify other people's value instead of qualify it. Now it's a numbers game. Yeah. Now it's a how many followers do you have, how many how many podcast listeners do you have, how many uh, how many likes did you get, how many reposts, and really. Does that indicate quality now yeah but has quality been has quality been devalued it in this moment in society i don't know
1: yeah these are great questions and uh <laughs> you know one thing one topic that you covered in your book which i really connected with was the red carpet topic of mm. that awkward moment where you're super famous on the red carpet and maybe other moments where you're not So famous. And you're studying the reaction of the photographers and the folks interviewing people on the red carpet. And there's this hierarchy of fame that's happening in real time on the red carpet. The reason I connect with that is that I covered the red carpet at Sundance in uh, 2020 before the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. And so I would see, you know, the bigger stars come out first. And then the publicist would sort of prep the press for who you're going to be able to talk to. And then the other actors in the film would come after them and you could just sense how awkward it was for them to know that they're the folks that the publicists have to tell the press who these people are (laughs) you know like they're this is their name and this is their role in the film and it's it's very awkward for everybody and i saw it happening in real time on the other side of the red carpet just as an observer and um it really resonated with me to hear your perspective on that in the book.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. I call it the you can get your temperature taken.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's when if you if you wanted to find out where you sit.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: But you know, I mean, but then, but really, when anyone goes on a red carpet, like they just have to. Oh, I feel it's best for myself, at least. You just, it's just a business transaction. You're mm-hmm. you're there to promote your project, and you know, just get to work. Right. Go promote your project. You know.
1: My my favorite uh, anecdote from that section of the book was the Danny McBride uh, story.
0: Yeah, he's terrific. Him yeah just
1: tell, grabbing those tickets and telling <laughs> telling the escort to uh, to fuck off. <laughs> but uh anyway, let's talk about Violet. Sure. I've seen it twice now, and oh, great. I'm curious because you've written so many screenplays. I've I've read some other interviews that you've done, and so you have a lot of screenplays in the hopper so to speak Mm
0: -hmm.
1: why this film out of all the screenplays that you wrote why is this your first feature directing
0: i guess i i just felt like um okay the short answer is if the world were to blow up after i get my first film out there uh, i would want to make sure that this one's out there Mm. the longer answer i'll give you a, a summary of the longer answer is you know my goal eventually is to do these what i call layered projects layered films that combine uh, tech and entertainment. And, uh, you know, you can structure scripts in a completely different way because you're using a different way to deliver your film. You're not delivering it in a linear fashion necessarily, and not choose your own adventure, but rather because of the different ways you can can deliver a story with a touchscreen technology or augmented reality and things like that you can structure your script differently. You don't have to structure your script in a linear fashion. You can, instead of it being like a line, you can shape it more like a tree.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And again, not choose your own adventure, but rather the story is this complex and you can watch it in a different way. Anyway, so good conversation for another time. But yeah, so with that in mind, I was like, okay, well, if, I, if I'm if i to get one feature, if I would want to make sure that I got this one out if if I, in fact, ever did the layered films and then felt like oh, I can never go back to a conventional kind of film, I would want to make sure that I had gotten that one out. Right. But, you know, but, uh, you know, things change. And now there's a lot of other conventionally structured films that I would I'd like to do as well. So <laughs> but anyway, that's the longer answer, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that I got this one out there. Yeah, it's like if somebody if somebody said if you could only pick one, which one would it be? And I'm like, okay, this one. But I, you know, of course, I want to do like 20 more films.
1: Right. I would think if you have more conventional storytelling and other scripts, that at the moment or in the moment, probably see this as a riskier film to try to make, just because it is so unconventional.
0: Oh. No, for me, this is more of a conventional film because I'm shooting it in a, it's a linear.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying.
0: I mean, yeah, there's a, it's a linear film. So I guess what I'm saying is uh, let's say you shoot all the scenes and it's like a, it's like a series. Let's say each scene is a, is cards, a cards in a deck of cards. Mm -hmm. And when you assemble them in the edit, you assemble them in some kind of order. So you're turning over each card, as you, or each card's turned up, and you just you just move through it. Right. You see all these cards in a, in a particular order. So I'm talking about like films where like yeah, you might shoot all these scenes and then display them for the viewer, like you would set up a solitaire game.
3: Hmm. Yeah.
0: So you only have like seven scenes turned up, but you can do deep dives. In particular directions, if you want to know more about that person or what that look that just occurred between those two people and right. things like that. So that's what, so no, to me, Violet is relative to the layered projects I want to do. Violet is one of the um, conventional, I just mean like something that can be displayed in a, in a, in a movie theater because you're watching it unfold before you in a linear fashion.
1: Got it. Yeah. Well, geez. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I I guess those other projects that you're thinking about doing must be really unconventional because this one for me was unconventional from the standpoint that it almost seemed multimedia because, and maybe that's not the right definition for it, but yeah, where you're- Like
2: a collage.
1: Yeah. You're, you're reading, it's almost like you're reading the journal, the journaling yeah. from Violet, in real time about her experiences that are going on on screen. And then you're hearing the voiceover or the the committee, Justin throws narration. And then you're also cinematically seeing the screen color change. There's so much going on in addition to the conventional storytelling that you see in movies that you cannot watch this film while you're scrolling through Twitter. Um, I, I know I speak with firsthand experience cause that's kind of my de-
0: I know. default
1: position when I'm watching movies.
0: And I know people are used to doing that now, but you know, right. I, I, I mean, I'm of the mind and, you know, grew up watching films that were tasked with holding your attention for 90 to 120 or more minutes in a theater. Yeah. Like, how are you going to do that? Right. You know, but I know a lot of films are made now. My manager calls it visual music, like stuff that can be on while you are multitasking. Mm. Yes, while you're scrolling through Twitter and answering your emails and yeah. and doing all the rest. But I wanted to, and yes, you're right. Uh, you know, this is you know, this isn't like an extremely conventional film. You know, of course, where you're just like watching these scenes, and you know, each scene has like a master and a close up and a close up, and then we're out. And oh, sorry, master again, and then we're out. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, in my heart, I'm a collage maker. I mean, as a kid, like that was my first collage making and writing was like my kind of my natural state creatively as a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love, you know, Photoshop and, you know, Pixelmator Pro, Maker Pro and Mater Pro. And I love the things you can do on those. And I want to kind of approximate that in film. And in this, in this film in particular, in Violet, I really, to me, the most important character is in the film is the viewer. I wanted to make an immersive experience for the viewer, so they could go kind of like a you know amusement park ride. You get in it and you go through it yourself, yeah. instead of objectively watching the actors experience this. And yeah, my real hope is that yeah, you know, because it deals with like what would you do if you weren't afraid, like and how do you get to a life where you don't even have to ask yourself that question anymore. My hope is that people after they see this film can feel freer in their life and that that expands and increases in their life. And if it's something that they're not currently going through, maybe they have a friend who is, or, or maybe in five years, they're like, Ew, I'm having this sticky situation. And I remember that film I saw a few years ago, Violet, the character just did the opposite
2: mm-hmm.
0: or character asked herself, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And maybe I'll try that, you know? So that's my hope that, you know, it's the film I wish I'd seen at nineteen. Mm. You know, would have would have saved me a lot of time.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> mission accomplished in terms of the immersive right. experience. Uh, yeah, it is immersive in a lot of ways. But what struck me is that you took what would normally be sort of an unrelatable character, from the standpoint that Olivia Munn is this A-list actress who is her character is working in Hollywood in a film studio. Where, you know, most people don't know what that's like. And they probably look at it as, you know, that's Hollywood. It's not me. But, you know, that old cliche everybody's fighting a battle you know nothing about. Here you're brought into her battle internally right from the start, right out of the gate. And it's disconcerting. It's unsettling, but it makes her very relatable because I think everybody, even if the voice isn't as loud as Justin Throw's or as Assertive or aggressive. Everybody has a voice, right? You know, chirping in their ear and um, making them feel insecure and kind of changing the way they should actually be living their lives. So it, it became relatable very quickly, and it was extremely you know immersive from start to finish. So well done on that. Thanks. How did you approach casting this film? You're a first time feature film director. You've been an actress for a long time, for decades and a writer and a producer and you've done so much in entertainment digital media so you had a lot of street cred going in but still first-time feature film director on a film that is compared to other mainstream movies fairly unconventional even though it's conventional relative to your other work
0: relative to the other ones yeah
1: yeah (laughs) so how did you attract this type of talent i mean luke you know, Olivia Munn, Justin Throw, li- a lot of great actors.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, you know, first, I'm going to come to that in a second. First, I want to, uh, you know, the this is not a, like, um, the film is not a expose of the industry or anything like that. In fact, the conflicts that she has with her boss, that Violet has with her boss, I haven't had that this kind of thing myself in the business. It's really just, I wanted to set, I wanted it to be an actress that looks like this. I wanted it to be, you know, has like, you know, she has her health, she's she's very beautiful, she doesn't seem to have any problems. She works in a business that are, is very aspirational to many people and and in a town that uh, you know, many people would like to live in. I wanted to eliminate all the variables where somebody might point to and say, "Oh, well, that's why. Mm. That's why she's hard on herself. Mm. She's not very good at her job or she doesn't have very many friends or she lives in a town that's very kind of dark and, and industrial. And I wanted to eliminate all of that so that we could, we could just talk about what's going on in somebody's head and that's it. Hmm. And then in that sense too, if somebody's own voice is saying, oh, well, no wonder you don't have any self-confidence. You're at this job. Maybe they'll see the film and go, yeah, but wait a minute. She doesn't have a kind of dead end job. Like I feel like I've got right now. And yet she has this going on too. Right. So maybe I can get out of this without having to, you know, sometimes we convince ourselves, well, you don't have any self-confidence because you don't have the right job. You're not married to the right person. You're not in the right city, blah, 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 blah. And then you just feel trapped like, Oh, I'll never feel confident that. And I think that's complete bullshit. You can totally become fully yourself. And maybe those things around you will change as a consequence but it's not like you've got to change all these things around you in order for that to happen. Like, Oh, if only I lived, I'll be happy. When if only I lived in another city, if only I was at another job, if only I, you know, Mm -hmm. and then that, that gives us an opportunity to just like kick our confidence just down the road. Right. It becomes this, I'll be confident when, or I'll be happy when, and I think there's, there's a better way. Okay. So just wanted to cover that. But the, as far as the casting goes, you know, for, you know, because I was an actor for many, many years, you know, I know what it's like as an actor to get a script. And if the script is good, the role is a character that you feel good, like you feel the timing is right for you to play that kind of role in your life at that moment. That's what you're feeling like doing at that moment. Um, The people that are involved in the project are of high quality. All these factors you know, for these actors that are reading my scripts, all that has to be in place, right? So maybe they maybe they see that we're all quality people and they really like the script, but it's not a character they want to play right now. Right. Um, or it's a character they want to play right now, but they don't like my style as a director. Or whatever. Maybe it's something like that. So y- you never know. So all those things have to come together. And luckily, you know, they, they came together for this cast that I've got and um man everybody is just great in this agreed and i think it's it's really important not just for your main characters but for your your secondary characters it's important to get actors that are outstanding yeah i mean to get the best actors you can possibly get somebody's got one line two lines that's really fucking important yeah because you're if you don't if you're not casting great actors in those parts too you're playing sort of with the veracity of your film you're playing with the when you have great actors in those parts too it deepens the whole project in a way that i don't know a lot of people are are aware right it gives it it gives it heft it gives it believability it gives it it's really important i think
1: yeah dennis as the um as olivia's olivia's character's boss i think added a lot of gravitas too. To the film, I mean, oh,
0: completely. You know, all- he did a great job. Somebody who's so wounded in his own life mm-hmm. that he can't, he can't get out of his own way. I mean, you know, as much as the voice is affecting her, it's affecting him too. It's affecting everybody, you know. And some people hear it less, you know. Like Lila says, "Yeah, when I hear it, I just know it's a lie." But for other people, it it becomes really kind of f- foundational. It's what they lean on.
1: So, in terms of funding this film and getting it. Into the festival circuit and submitted to South by Southwest. What was that process like? And also, what was it like to run up against the pandemic right at a critical moment when you're trying to get get this film out there?
0: Yeah, well, the the getting the funding that took uh, a year and a half, and it was me and my manager Larry, uh, just just hitting up everybody we knew who had money and everybody we knew who knew someone who had money and even people who said they had money and didn't have money. <laughs> I mean, I, there's a whole other script that I could write about that experience. Cause it, it was like, it became a carousel of crazy. It was really, it was really kind of crazy, but yeah, it took us a year and a half. And, um, and then submitting. Uh, yeah. I just submitted, you know, you just go just like anybody else. I just go on film freeway and just, you know, submit to, you know, um, Sundance and South by and Tribeca and Cannes and Berlin. I mean, you, had those, you can do those on, on film freeway, but yeah. I mean, I just, I just do what anyone would do. And, and the response was just really fantastic. I mean, South by, I had not gotten into South, so i would had two shorts before that. So I'd done the submissions with, with those as well. And I, I did not get into South by with my shorts, but I got in with the film mm-hmm. and I got in early. So I'd like hold hold the information back for a long time. And then um, you know, a couple of the other big festivals were interested too. And I was like, I was like, oh shit, I just already gave my word to South by. So yes, then holding it and then, you know, and getting all the promotional material together and making the hotel reservations, getting all the actors set up, and you know, the investors are gonna come to the festival too, you know, just making all those arrangements you know, for this, for this film and, you know, multiply that times, however many films were accepted. And then times that how many other, you know, musicians were ready to go and tech companies and speakers and all, you know, it's such a massive, it's three festivals in one. It's huge. Right. And then a week before it's supposed to start a week and not like, let's, uh, we're not sure if we're going to have it or not. Like, no, it was on and just, canceling it just a week before we were all going to show up. Yeah. It was really extraordinary because you, you, you know, I wrote the script in 2010, uh, 11, and then, you know, like went to school and, you know, did all these other things. And so it's not like I was trying to get it made for 10 years, you know, it's not like that, but to then pick it up and go like, Oh, I'm this, this is, I'm going to do this. And then go through the process of getting the money and then going through the process of making the film, you know, and then casting and getting the film done. And then get, and then hoping you get into a film festival, and then getting into the film festival, and then holding, you know, not telling anyone about it until they make their announcement. So anyway, just a series of of waiting, and also for me as a director, I'd wanted to direct since I was nineteen, but the timing never felt right. So that f- switch had been flipped too, you know. Um, yeah, you know, a little earlier. So anyway, there was a, all these different moments of waiting. And then finally it's like, oh, now this release. Oh my God, great. We can go and we can celebrate this film coming out. We can sell it hopefully to a distributor. And, and then to have like to have that canceled. That is a, a unique kind of feeling. And and I feel for everybody who was a part of that festival, everybody who had anything they'd been waiting for in 2020. I just want to say, I feel you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Athletes, musicians, you know, account executives that had like things planned, like anybody, you know, weddings, graduations everything yeah there's really something very important about the ritual of celebrating accomplishments and performances and you know uh, accomplishments academic or artistic or whatever it is and that's been a part of us as a for human beings for as long as we have been around yeah you know to have ritual and celebration and to have all that canceled it's a bad thing for humans to not have those things there's there's something necessary about it i think
1: i agree i was just talking about this with my producer jason that i think there's a collective trauma that has to be reckoned with that has happened to our not just our country but the world in terms of like you're saying the canceled celebrations are one thing but the canceled rituals of you know mourning someone's death and not being able to go to a funeral not being able to be with someone you know i'm a new grandfather and you know i'm lucky to live with my grandchild now but a lot of grandparents didn't get to see their grandkids for an entire year or longer but there's this this collective trauma that hasn't been processed in the entertainment industry it's in everyday life and i think it's going to reverberate for decades and I don't know how we're going to reckon with it but it hasn't been dealt with it isn't really being discussed because we're still trying to emerge mm. from the acute trauma of the pandemic and the you know dealing with the chronic ongoing trauma is something that i don't know we just have to figure a way through it somehow
0: yeah it feels like a for me a, a theft mm-hmm. you know it's like something was stolen right. from us yeah. you know like graduated from high school you can't get that back that's, that's that. It was stolen. Mm-hmm. You can't get it back. Yep. But we can go on and know that things can be restored in other in other ways. You know, we can be, get like, you know, well, that blessing was stolen. You can get double blessing in some other area somewhere else down the line, you know? Right. So I believe in that. And in that sense, I got the following. Toronto had wanted it, Toronto have wanted Violet the year prior, but like we were very enmeshed in you know it was going to be virtual and it, we were very enmeshed still in you know talking about covid and and the US election presidential election so i was like i just i don't want to going out right now like I, how am i going to be able to talk about it on social media you know right um while all this other stuff is you know very intensely going on so i thought south by would be I, so i reapplied you know after you know had to. as so i held the film i just i didn't want to do it that way so i held the film and i reapplied for south by and some of the other festivals, including Toronto, Tribeca, you know, there were other film festivals that had wanted it previously. And, you know, and was lucky enough to get into South by again. And I thought it would be in, I was hoping it would be in person. And I said, no, we have to do it virtually again. I was like, all right, well, I know the timing's just right. I don't want to do this virtually, but the timing is right. And it seemed, it was like poetic that it would be finally be out, you know, premiere at South by anyway. Okay. So to get to this, so then Toronto call. And said, you know, the Toronto Film Festival, and said, you know, we want Violet again. We're going to be in person. I was like, oh, oh no! I've just, I've just committed to doing like world premiere because they like to have that premiere status. Oh yeah. And Diane Sanchez said, it's okay. It can be an international premiere. And I was like, really, really? (laughs) Are you really going to be in person? Like for real? And I just, I couldn't believe that because I thought, all right, well, I know what it's like to have. I mean, I as a short film director, I got to have that experience at TIFF. That was where I premiered my first short. And, you know, you look at what the experience was like for feature directors while you're there and you're like, ah, someday, you know? Mm-hmm. So I thought, uh, I had written it off. I thought, okay, I'm not gonna get to have that experience as a feature director for my first film at a festival because I'll have to do it virtually because of what's going on. Right. But then when Diane Sanchez at, at TIFF said, no, we're doing it in person and I want the film here, I was like, wow, this is great. So I was really lucky that I got to have an in-person experience with this.
1: You got the best of both worlds.
0: At TIFF. I really did. Yeah. I really did. And we got to do it inside a beautiful theater and then at outside theater, which was great. And then drive in, which was terrific. Yeah, I had a great experience there. And, you know, very grateful to South by two for taking the film twice. And yeah, and yeah, that's it. That's, yeah, I just applied like any other person, really.
1: Yeah. And so you were probably on the edge of your seat because not not getting accepted the second time around after getting accepted the first time, that would have just been gut-wrenching.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I was hoping I'd get in somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have sucked.
1: <laughs> so in terms of the theater release and then the, the VOD release, October 29th, I think, is the theatrical release. Yeah. And then a week or two later, uh, VOD?
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, pretty much. It'll be in theaters on the 29th of October, like you said, and then Mm -hmm. wider on the 5th of November. Like it'd be LA, New York on the 29th, and then more cities on, on the 5th, and then online on the 9th.
1: Got it. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So as an entertainer and a digital media expert and a computer science academic and everything that you have going for you career-wise, what do you see next for Justine Bateman creatively?
0: Thank you. It's very nice of you. Creatively. um, Well, there's a third book I'm going to do about going to college. I went in as a freshman at 46, graduated at 50. And that book will, I'll put that together at some point. (laughs) And then more immediately though, you know, yeah, I have some, like during the shutdown, I wrote a lot of scripts just because I wanted to be in some other reality. Mm -hmm. So I want to shoot those. One is an adaptation of face because the format for face, my second book is, 47 short stories. So I've taken 14 of them and adapted them in script form. So I'm looking to raise the money for that. You know, it's just like, you're just, I'm just back at that process now, like raising the money for these projects. So there's that, there's um, a satire that uh, I'm looking to raise the money for. Yeah. Just trying to get another film going and hoping that these protocols, shooting protocols can be relaxed. Cause right now on a film set for anyone who doesn't know, about a tenth of your budget goes towards uh, COVID testing, sanitization.
1: The COVID marshal. <laughs>
0: COVID marshal.
1: Overseer. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's like a tenth of your budget.
1: I've heard that. Yeah. And
0: it's difficult to get for, for larger films. They can, you know, if it's a studio or a streamer, they can insure themselves. But if you're an independent film, uh, it's difficult to get insurance right now for your film. And if you've got to shut down for a week because someone's become infected that could just like destroy your entire budget. I-, I don't know. So I, it's, uh, and I also don't want to be told who I can stand near, you know, I mean, while I'm <laughs> directing it, you know, directing a film is complex enough and I really salute anyone who's done it under these circumstances. It's really tough. Or even, and with, with some terrific results, uh, you know, like the guilty, I don't know if you've seen that, the Jake Gyllenhaal film, he and the director did, just a great job. And that was all done like under like very specific restrictions mm-hmm. because uh the director had to be isolated or I don't I don't know all the details, but they did a great job. Yeah. They really did
1: a great job. I just started that film. I haven't finished it.
0: It's not easy. Yeah. It's uh yeah, that 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 film in particular, like Jill and does it's very difficult from an actor's point of view and also from a director's point of view to hold an entire arc of a of the film's story Mm -hmm. in one performance right like that's not very easy so they really did a good job yeah but yeah i hope to not (laughs) i don't really want to shoot under these conditions
1: i've heard other interviews with you where i've kind of gathered your take and perspective on that and it's a little bit contrarian i don't know if that's the right word but you're definitely not in the camp of bending over backwards to, I guess, carry out the narrative of let's be as safe as possible no matter what, safety above everything else. I think creatively, it, it sounded like from previous interviews that you were kind of frustrated with how rigid the protocols were and how it gets in the way of connecting on set. And and also, and maybe this observation is not completely accurate, but you seem to push back on the narratives that Hollywood is, is sexist and misogynist and, you know, the me too movement, your, your perspective seems to be a little bit contrarian or at least different than the usual talking points that I hear coming from Hollywood folks.
0: Um, maybe, uh, you know, as far as like the protocols on the sets, I know the, the guilds, you know, the DGA and WGA, uh, IA SAG and Teamsters and so forth. I've done, you know, a really great job at creating situations where we can shoot. So I-, I think they've done a terrific job. I just personally know that I like it's already complex to shoot a film. Right. And I hope that by the time I've raised the money to shoot one of my films, I hope we as a society have gotten to a point where those protocols can be relaxed because I feel like I can Just me as a person, I can either do these protocols or I can make a film. I don't know. I don't know if I want to be doing them at the same time. That's why I say like I really salute people who are doing that simultaneously right now. Right. So, yeah, it's just I'm grateful for the protocols because it's allowed filmmaking to continue. I just hope for me personally that by the time I've raised the money to shoot my next film, I hope we've gotten to a point with COVID that we don't need the protocols. Right. That's just my. I mean, and I'm sure. I'm sure everybody who's now using the protocols has the same wish. Oh yeah, you know, and yeah. everybody. I mean, everybody hopes we can get like past this, right? But yeah, that's that's my feeling on that. Very grateful that it's allowed us to shoot, but I I do hope that we get to a point where they're not necessary by the time I have my funding for my films. And then, as far as the, the sexism in Hollywood, I let's just say I've experienced it outside of professional settings far more often than within professional settings. Mm. This is my experience with it. Yeah. And really if if anyone behaves sexist towards me or to any woman, they're just showing you their hand. They're just saying I am severely insecure. Right. And somehow you standing in front of me pushes all kinds of buttons that I need to deal with that I need to deal with you know, that this man would say, you know, that they need to deal with personally, like away from us, like, please like go to a therapist and get to a point where that doesn't happen for you. Right. You know, you get to a point where you can stand in front of a group of women and not have your buttons pushed. Wouldn't that be a better life? Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. So that's what it says to me. Yeah. It says, I have some deep insecurities and women push my buttons and- and I, it's a, like, it's a cry, it's a cry for help, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah. So that, that's what it says to me. So in other words, these, when a, when a man is sexist towards me, he's telling me about himself. He's not telling me about me.
1: It's not personal against you. It's just an observation you're making about their character as opposed to you know, letting it affect you.
0: Well, you know, it it's, it's what they wind up doing is uh, they wind up saying and doing things that. Here's how the chain of events go, as I understand it. And, and we, we go over this in Violet, right? When she's in the parking lot and she feels really uncomfortable, mm-hmm. she says something critical to the other person to try and make herself feel better, right. to try and push them off balance. So I believe if, I'm, if a man is going to be sexist towards me, I believe that it first starts, he's going along and he feels fine. And then something about me, something about the situation causes his insecurity to erupt. Mm and he doesn't like how that feels. So instead of just being uncomfortable, he wants to get away from feeling uncomfortable and wants to say something to me to throw me off balance so that in doing that, he can feel, he can feel righted. Right. He can feel like he's back on track because now he's distracted me from having a presence that pushes his buttons.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah, and he he didn't let it push his buttons in the movie either. He didn't take it personally. At least that was my perception of that scene. But who didn't? The in the parking lot in that oh, scene. Oh,
0: correct, yeah. correct. Yeah. He didn't. Right, right. Right. He didn't. He, you know, right, exactly, on the phone call after Martin says, mm-hmm. "It's okay. I know I know it was a really uncomfortable situation for you." So that's really it. Right. When some guy's being sexist towards me, that's what I think in my head. I think, wow, this must be such an uncomfortable situation for you. Wow. I hope things can go better for you in the future.
1: That's a remarkable empathy (laughs) that you you have the capacity for.
0: Well, it can be an empathy, but it, it can also be a, and I'll never work with you again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I certainly, while you're off, you know, if you, if you go through some transformative experience because you go to therapy and you go and you deal with your, with your insecurities, Maybe you'll get on the other side of it and you'll be somebody who'll be good to work with in the future. But until then, there's plenty of guys, there's plenty of men and women who don't have this insecurity that causes them to just like lose their shit. Right. And I've worked with so many of them, so many people who are fantastic in this business, male and female. There's so many to choose from. I'm only talking about my situations, I'm not talking about anyone else's. And I'm talking about situations where I have a choice. I know a lot of people are in situations where they don't have a choice or they don't feel like they have a choice or the choice isn't presented to them. Right. So I'm just talking about situation where the, where there is a choice Mm -hmm. where you go like, ah, I'm talking to a bunch of different people to do X, Y, Z with, and you seem to have like some insecurities. I wish you the best. Yeah. I'm not going to be working with you. I'm going to be working with these other people who don't seem to like lose it. (laughs) you know when there's like um something to discuss and yeah so boy that's a that's a long non-sound by answer to to your question but that's my that's my position on it
1: well it was a poorly worded question and i appreciate the you expounding on it in the way you did (laughs) and
0: i don't and i don't you know to reiterate like i don't find the entertainment business to be spectacularly different in the number of Men who are sexist than other industries and just life out there, right. I've come across that this rarely in the entertainment business for myself personally. Mm-hmm. but i've I've come across it a lot more often outside of the entertainment business. So sure, does it exist in the entertainment business? Yeah, but any more or less than other places on the planet? I'm not so sure about that. Hmm. I mean, I shouldn't say well, that was very vague. I say, any more or less. That was a silly way to say it. Rather, I should have said a sexism is going to exist anywhere you have an insecure male. Yeah. So, and where, where do you, where do we think that could be? Well, anywhere.
1: Anywhere. Universal experience pretty much. Yeah.
0: But I've found <laughs> every situation, you know, uh, I've found an awful lot of guys in the entertainment business who are just fantastic to work with. So no i don't i don't find the entertainment business to be spectacularly sexist at all not my personal experience hasn't proven that
1: i'd like to ask you about advice you may have for folks wanting to get into film given that you started in the industry at a time when there was no democratization of the industry or very little i mean it was it was a pretty big barrier to entry i think and now that Technology has evolved to the point where people can shoot films on their phones, they can become TikTok famous or YouTube famous. There are so many points of entry into the entertainment industry, into being seen and heard. But there's still there's still people out there that want to do something very specific. They want to either make television or film. And I don't even really draw a distinction between those two mediums anymore because of the way TV is shot, you know, episodic television has just completely evolved. But What advice do you have, given that you have this experience in education in digital media and computer science and also acting and writing? What would you say to young people wanting to break into film right now? Like what what is the first step or what are the the series of steps that they should go through? Or is that an unanswerable question?
0: Oh gosh. I mean, there's so many ways to answer that question. I think yes, like, you know, as far as barrier to entry, sure, it used to be you have to you know, work on a TV show or film, there's going to be (laughs) distributed in these by these means. And that was that. So yeah, it's super cool. Now you can have international distribution of anything you want to do just with a (laughs) click of a button. It's crazy. And I remember, you know, we're so accustomed to it now. But I remember in like 2007, when, you know, the bandwidth could, you know, I don't even know if it could yet, you know, YouTube had this restriction on uh, length of videos that was three minutes.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
0: For quite a bit. Yeah. And so everybody was going like, oh, well, you know, episodes of series online have to be three minutes long. And I was like, no, that's a YouTube restriction. That's not what we have to do. Mm-hmm. There are other platforms like new TV and places like that. Anyway, it's funny that they thought like that's the way it has to be. And I'm like, but it's a technical restriction right? because <laughs> their servers couldn't handle more than three minutes. But um. Yes. So it's true. There is that barrier to entry has been lowered and changed. But to me, there is still a very specific barrier to entry that will never change. And that is being good. Hmm. Is what you're doing good for anybody's who's thinking who's not yet, who's not in the business, but is thinking about getting the business. I just ask them why. Right. It's fucking hard to do the work. The work is hard, like to make, to write something that's really good. And then to get it funded and then to make it work when you're shooting it, which can be two different things. And then to make it work in the edit and then to hit a particular zeitgeist, however small in society at that moment, it gets released (laughs) like, and all the components that are, you know, getting the right people together to do it. And there's so many ways it can go sideways Yeah, and you have to, you have to ask yourself why you're doing this. And if you, if your answer is, I can't not do it, I tried not to do it, I can't not do it, I have to do it, you're going to be fine because you're going to have, you're going to have the fuel to work when you're not getting paid, (laughs) to go above and beyond, to make it happen, to make it succeed. I mean, I don't, I don't know how anybody gets anything done in entertainment and I'm, you know, musicians, whomever, everybody without needing like, somehow it's just your path because otherwise i don't know how you'd have the endurance to do what you have to do to to ask person after person after person after person after person to you know i don't know be your cinematographer or to get the funding or to get distribution or to you know what i mean there's right i just don't know how you'd have the gas so if you're trying to be famous if you're trying to be known there's a real low barrier of entry for that right and you may be getting yourself into an, or an arena where you're just never going to be satisfied. That's a life choice that is going to like, you're going to hit a wall somewhere. Right. But if you want to, if you want to be, you want to be a filmmaker, start and, and, and you've just, you know, she's like, yes, this is what I have to do. Then start small and affordable and affordably. The Duplass brothers have a great book called Like Brothers mm. that you know, part of it is talking about the relationship and part of it is talking about filmmaking with nothing. That's a really good book to read about looking, you know, the the basic basic tenet in that book is look around at what you have access to. Mm. What actors do you have access to? What equipment do you have access to? What locations do you have access to? What story do you have access to? Do you write? Can you write it? Can you, do you have a friend who's a writer? Can you write it? Like, what do you have access to? Spread your arms out, you know, at this radius, what have you got? Right. Yeah. Metaphorically. Right. You know, just within your, your world. Right. What have you got? And then do something like put something together. See, you know, I highly recommend doing a short before you try to take on a feature as a director. Mm -hmm. See how you like to work. See who you want to work with. It's going to be a lot easier if you're doing a two day shoot to figure out if you like that cinematographer Mm. or you like working with this producer or something. Right you know, rather than being on a 20 day shoot and you're like, fuck, <laughs> what am I doing? Can't wait to, you know, and then you're, you're married to them for like the life of the product, you know, the shoot, or if it's a producer, you know, through distribution and everything. So, so it's a, it's a great way to like shop around for who you want to work with in the future on your, on your bigger projects. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, for that, for writing, writing's pretty glorious as far as uh, access of, of the actual doing of doing of it. That's a shit sentence, but all to say if you want to write, like write, you don't have to get anyone's permission, It doesn't cost anything. You can actually just do it. Right. You know, as a as an actor you got to wait to be, you know, picked off the line, you know, like in dodgeball or something like on, on, you know in the schoolyard. You got to wait till somebody picks you. Right. Directing you have to be You have to be given a situation that you're actually directing or you know generate it yourself but then you got to get a bunch of people together to do this project but man writing you just get it done you know it's like painting or something
1: i quote stephen king quite often in this podcast because his book on writing really resonated with me but i think it was in that book that he said ass plus chair equals writing (laughs) yeah pretty simple
0: (laughs) And basically just be brutally honest with yourself as to whether or not it's good. Mm-hmm. If you think it's kind of conventional or it's okay. Well, is that okay with you? Mm. Yeah. I mean, you you just be honest with yourself, you know, or if you read it through and you're like, Oh God, that's really, that really just sounds like a, you know, that sounds like a dialogue exchange of, you know, it's shit. Mm-hmm. If you know, it's shit then take a tape recorder, go go record some conversations. I mean, don't, you know, use it for your own purposes. If you're in the state of California, you got to tell other people you're recording them. But <laughs> if you're not using it, if you're using it for your own, and then go and then transcribe it. Right. To get, or Record an hour-long conversation with a friend and then, you know, for no other purpose than to transcribe it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's going to take you a long time to transcribe it, but holy shit, you're going to see how dialogue is really structured. Right. And one thing you'll discover is it's one long sentence often. Very interesting. Lots of ellipses and commas and dashes. And, and you know, just like listen to how people really talk and stuff. Anyway, that's one example. Like if you feel like your dialogue is shit, go listen to how people talk.
1: That's in, that's incredible. Yeah. Go
0: listen to how people talk when they're under pressure. Listen to how people talk. Like when I hear a, an argument in the neighborhood, I'll like go out on my front lawn and i just like, listen, listen <laughs> to how it's structured, you know?
1: Fly on the wall. Or how
0: do people talk when they're, you know, in a more formal setting, you know, in an interview? How do people talk when they're feeling uncomfortable? How does their tone change? How does the structure of what they're saying change? Anyway, that's one example like of dialogue. Or if you're wondering, like, man, I really want to shoot I really I've got this idea for an action film stuff, but I like I don't know how to go about like structuring stuff. Go buy some scripts of really good action films and see how they're structured. Is it structured within the script? Or was it the director? Was it what the director did with it? with storyboards and stuff that really gave it form? You know, I mean, man, like if you want to be a good novelist, read some great books. Yeah. You know, if you want to have better style and the clothes you wear, start looking at out- what kind of outfits do people put together who have great style? You know, you yeah. do that. Have a, have a bar of entry for yourself where right. it's got to be good.
1: I like that. I like the dichotomy between fame and being good that you just laid out there. Because, you know, the, as you said, the barrier to entry for being famous, whatever that means, uh, TikTok, famous, views, likes, is much different than the entry barrier to just working in the industry, you know, and making movies or acting, where you really have to be good. It's a meritocracy when you strip away the fame part of it and you know how do you get good and your answer is the best i've heard in recent memory and i ask this question a lot on the podcast but you really laid out a nice roadmap for people to think about what it means to be good how do you get good at whatever it is you want to do in film and television but i did not know that the duplass brothers wrote a book i'm going to put that in my show notes and i'm also going to order it and read it because i i think they're one of the best examples of working with. Whatever they have access to. And that's a great way of putting it. But they seem to work with folks that they're comfortable with on budgets that are clearly not, you know, big budget blockbuster type of movies, but they're great films. And they're so prolific. I mean, they're just constantly cranking out really solid work. And I think that, and I follow Mark at least on social media, he's such a positive presence. In Hollywood, and so supportive, it seems, of everyone around him. He just wants to lift people up. And, you know, like with Room 104 on HBO, just giving actors and directors a chance to be a part of the creative process and put out a lot of stuff that's fun and good. So thanks for sharing that book idea.
0: Yeah, there are other great books too about, um, like, A Man with a Camera, Nestor Almendros, about cinematography, if anyone's interested in that. Um, the big goodbye, Sam Wasson's book about it's the big goodbye Chinatown in the last years of Hollywood Mm. about the making of Chinatown, right? That's uh really interesting about you know where all you know the writer, producer, director, actor like where were all these people just before they came together to do this, and then like Erwin Winkler's book A Life in Movies. I found the first half. Uh, where he's talking about producing where you started out and stuff. That's very interesting, you know, about like, you know, if if somebody wants to be a producer, like, what does it take? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to support this film?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, what are you willing to do? Right. And, and like the work is the thing. I, I do feel like as an actor, if you're not trying to make your next project, your next role, the best you've ever done, then like get out of the business. like. Mm it's It's insulting to the work as if as a writer, you're not trying to do like the best you can do, come on, yeah, as a producer, if you're not willing to like i mean, you know and and look, these are like absolutes, like there's a lot of variables, you know, sometimes you just can't or sometimes you've done the best you can, and then you know, as a writer, you get a bunch of studio notes or or investor notes or who knows what, and you like, Fuck. and you gotta you know and starts making a little bit of a Frankenstein and so. That's understandable. But, but if it's somebody's core, they're really, you know, as a producer, you care about this film. You care about this film like it was your own child.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you're going to do whatever it takes to make the best things happen for it. You know, that's the right mindset to, you know, and like as a, as a director, for me, I, I feel that I'm, to me, it's a service position. I'm being of service to this film. I understand what the, what the thesis statement is for this particular film and that makes it easy for me to make decisions all the many 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 decisions you have to make on a film because they all have to support that thesis statement mm. or they could even be in conflict of that thesis statement and and in in looking at that contrast it proves it you know just like it's like you're writing a paper every time and then all the people you choose have to be of that same mind you know your your department heads everybody and i have a responsibility to that film i'm i'm being of service to that film and you know, if you can have that mindset, like it's the work, it's the work that's important.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a great way of framing it. And it makes me look at filmmaking in a different way, frankly, especially when I look back at Violet and I, I love the film by the way. Thank you. But when I hear your perspective on the importance of paying attention to what the objective is, you're there as a servicing the story, which is serving the audience. Yeah. You know, you can't get distracted with anything else but that objective and it makes me look at Violet and think, you know, again like I said before, mission accomplished.
2: Oh,
3: thanks.
1: In terms of the immer- the immersive experience and also, you know, the the casting choices, the the multimedia approach to keeping the um, the audience glued to the screen. It's a very well-executed film and I really look forward to following your filmmaking career here forward.
0: Thanks. Uh, Yeah. um, Like uh, one of the examples of of that is, you know, when I got to what would have been like my final cut, uh, my final edit, I knew that I didn't quite have it. I was like, shit, I don't feel good about this. I don't feel good about this. Like, you know, kind of like, I just want to like, kind of shuffle this under, like in a bin where nobody's really going to see it because it's, I don't have it. I don't have it. I was missing. The entire
1: project you felt that way? The entire film?
0: Because but I hadn't finished, because it, it wasn't what you see now. Yeah. It was, um, and I'm talking about the handwriting. Oh, okay. The handwriting and the the amount of the frequency with which the voice talks. I realized, okay, as soon as the voice stops talking, she's fine. So I knew that I had to have that to be more of a constant. I had I, I didn't have it like that originally. And I knew like, God, I'm missing this passionate desperate yearning yearning is the wrong word like necessity to get out of this like the buildings on fire and I got to get out I'm like I'm I and I was like fuck. how do I how do I get that in there right now I like I I felt like I had it in my script you know I was like shit did I blow it on the script I felt like I had it when I was shooting but now I'm in the edit and I'm not and then I was like oh my god I've got it I'll write it on the screen And I didn't know if it would work, but what, what wound up happening was, so I've got the voice, it it created this pressure cooker. It changed the performance. Even it was really interesting. Hmm. So you got the voice, you know, banging down on violet. Right. Yeah. And then with the handwriting underneath this, like volcano of passion, like underneath, like bubbling up, bubbling up, bubbling up, needing to get out. It created this pressure cooker on the performance. Which was already beautiful, but it created this pressure cooker element to the performance that I was really satisfied with. And then I was like, "Okay, it's good. It's ready now. It's good."
1: So the, the handwriting wasn't part of the original script, then? No. Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. Okay, so you add that in editing, yeah. And did the act- So the actors at the time
0: they had, They had no idea. I only had half of what the what the voice was saying. I only had half of that in the script. Oh wow. So I knew that I needed, I was like, anyway, the thesis statement, right? Yeah. You know, I knew I didn't I hadn't serviced it properly
1: Hmm.
0: when I when I got to that final edit. It wasn't up to my standards.
1: Yeah. That's fascinating.
0: And so when I when I increased the number of things that the that the voice was saying and I added handwriting, I was like, okay, I've got it now. Now it can go out. And whether or not people agree. For me, all I can do is go by my own standards. And did I service this thesis statement? Did I complete what I feel like I was tasked with completing, tasked by the project itself? Hmm. I know that sounds a little like ethereal, but it's the same thing with the books. Like, what format did the books need to be in? What style did the books need to be in? And servicing that. Yeah. You know,
1: that's really interesting that the actors didn't know. Much of what was ultimately going to be on screen when they were saying their lines.
0: No, but you know what's fascinating is that somebody, is that some of the reviews, like for Olivia, and again, she did a great job. Yeah. But it's funny when they said, like, you can see when she's reacting to the voice saying this and that and this and that. And that when they're citing places where I didn't have the voice talking in the script at that point. Yeah. But it's it's called the it's uh advertising using uses this method all the time. And it's also in film called the Kuleshov effect, K-U-L-E-S-H-O-V, I think that my editor Jay Free can told me about. Mm-hmm. So in advertising, you know, you can put a word under an image and suddenly you've you've assigned a value to that image.
1: Yeah. Through suggestion.
0: And the brain has a very difficult time. It seems to me once it's coupled the image with that value once it creates it's created a value when it marries that image with that word it's difficult for it to uncouple that. Mm. So when you have somebody who's smiling on camera and then you write underneath it oh my god i want to die you go like oh my god i can see it in her face. Yeah. Maybe that's not what was going on for the actor at all at that moment. But it doesn't matter. You've, you've, you've created a value. You've created a new value mm-hmm. to what you're seeing on the screen.
1: And you've changed their performance in a way, like you said at the beginning.
0: In a way. Yeah. I mean, again, not taking anything for, away from Olivia. She did a fantastic job, but it created this other element that one would not be able to uncouple now. Right. And the cool of that effect is he took footage of a man reacting to something. You know, first he's looking at something. You see, for, he's looking at something. Then you show what he's looking at. Then you come back to him for his reaction. His reaction is quite neutral. So they show, so they ask the audience, they show the man and then they show a bowl of soup and then they show the man again. And they say, what's going on for this man, you know, when he, in this last shot? And they go, well, he's clearly very hungry. Hmm. Look how hungry he is. You can see it in his face. Yeah. And then they showed him another sequence. Where he's looking at something, then you show a woman, you know, laying on a couch, I believe, and then they show him again, and then they go, "What's going on for this guy?" And it's like, "Oh my God, he's so, you know, he's lusting after this woman." You could see it in his face. Right. He uses exactly the same footage of the man in both pieces.
1: Right. So it's really you're changing the perception of the performance, not the performance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Your mind is making a connection.
1: Oh, that's amazing.
0: Your mind's doing that, not the footage. Yeah, and music does this a lot in film. Music does this a lot. A tense situation, you know. I mean, if you ever listen to a, or watch a horror film without this, without the music, right. <laughs> without the score,
1: right? That's so funny.
0: It changes it. Your mind is making this, creating a value. It's it's taking two elements and creating a value. Mm. And sometimes people just don't realize it's happening. Like I said, we you know, it's it's used to great effect in advertising. <laughs>
1: So, what what has Olivia said about the film now that she's seen what you've done with it? I mean, the multimedia, the the journal writing, the additional voiceover, that type of thing. Did she have any commentary?
0: She's she's a big fan of the film, and you know, and I'm I'm so so happy for her that people are seeing this. You know, what she can do because I, I don't I don't feel like she was really given the opportunity prior. So. Um I'm really excited for her. I'm I'm excited to see what she'll do going forward, you know, what types of roles she'll she'll have access to now, you know, and
3: right, right.
0: And uh, go do. I'm very excited for her. And like the whole cast, I just like Luke Bracey, I mean the fact that he was even available, like I can't believe I got him. You know what I mean? He's it's,
1: just he is just stunning. <laughs> first of all, stunningly handsome. <laughs> I didn't realize yeah, looking just, at this guy like wow, he is a movie star. He really, in every sense,
0: he has this laid-back attitude that was like, or, or presence that was much more common. I think years ago with like you know Robert Mitchum's and you know uh, Steve McQueen, James Coburn, mm-hmm. Paul Newman, right? This I, I just feel like Paul
1: Newman, yeah, exactly.
0: You know, or even even more currently like Kurt Russell or. Dennis Quaid, or I don't know, just sort of this, like, you know, don't sweat the small shit kind of aura. Mm -hmm. It's not that common now. That was actually the the trickiest role to cast. It's not that common now. Yeah. So I was really glad that Luke came along and just everybody. Dennis was just perfect. And and Justin, like, what a, it's like criminal that I didn't have him on camera because he's such a good actor great writer i mean the whole thing oh
1: he's great he's great so yeah i thought at first it was i thought it was will arnett at first
0: ah yeah he's got a terrific voice too yeah
1: but um but that would have been yeah will is so associated with comedic performances i think that would have been kind of a, a different choice but
0: <laughs> well if they did a com- a comedy version of violet you know will arnett will be perfect then yeah but yeah the whole like a real a, a lot of talent all the way around cinematography sound design the score by Voom and by the way they have their score is going to come out about the same time as um as the film the end of the, at the end of the month so uh, I think people will be really will really like what they've done with you know they're like they expanded a lot of the score in there oh nice in their album yeah everybody so I was really lucky to have so many talented people on this film
1: One more comment, a random comment about Luke that I just thought about is he is such a movie star in terms of his appearance and his aura that it really served a great purpose in the story as a story device because it's so obvious to everyone who is watching the film that he is like the perfect boyfriend for her and she just cannot see it or doesn't want to accept it, whatever the barrier is for her that's preventing her from seeing that. It created that tension throughout the film because you're like, what is she <laughs> What is she not seeing here? You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: But then, but that's, you know, hopefully that'll make people see in their own lives. Like, you know, sometimes we don't recognize somebody, sometimes other people have to point it out to us like, hey, you know, you keep getting opportunities, you know, work opportunities that are like this. And sometimes we don't even see it. Right. Sometimes we'll go, oh my God, oh my God, you're right. And then you got to ask yourself, what am I doing? Why am I not going there? Right. That's, you know, you know, like this, this job, you know, uh, that she gets offered and then, you know, you have Laura San who's so fucking great say, uh, a nice job offer. And then she's like, well, I can't do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I can't do that. And it's so clear to her that she can't do that. She can't go in that direction and that she can't be with somebody. Let me tell you among women. And this is true of men too. I shouldn't just say women. There are a lot of people that are in relationships that are in a relationship that's got a lot of baggage in it over a relationship that is where like the road's clear right? because they don't think they deserve it or they don't think they, they, it's like almost like, well, if there's no work, then I I don't know what it is. I don't know how to be in that or I, you know what I mean? Like to be in, to be in situations where like there are no problems that makes some people really uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, sometimes people get involved with with a a married individual because they know the relationship's only going to go so far. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. Sometimes, sometimes we stay in situations that have built in roadblocks because we're afraid to go further than that. Yeah. And that could be part of why Violet doesn't want to be, you know, is holding herself back from all these things that are available to her. That's another thing. Like I'm going to eliminate the variables where she's, doesn't have access to these great options because the only thing is holding her back. Is that fear.
1: Well, Justine, uh, you have been so generous with your time today and also your insight about the industry. Oh
0: yeah. Well, you're so you're so good at this. I didn't even realize what time.
1: <laughs> no, it's been it's been a great conversation. And sometimes I feel badly for going so deep and and uh, demanding so much of of my guest's time. But you've been very gracious and generous, and I've learned a lot about. Creativity and the industry. I hope my listeners feel the same way and look forward to seeing how the response is going to be to this film with the theatrical release and VOD and then what your next project is. I can't wait to see it.
0: Well, thanks so much. Yeah, I hope you'll have me back on the next one.
1: Absolutely. I'll be in touch.
0: Okay, great.
1: Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favorite ask Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at dreampathpod. And as always, go find your dream path.